Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, everyone. It's Michael McNutt with Weedy. From our Weedy archives, how artificial intelligence digital assistants are improving capacity and capability while reducing burden. Our speaker is Dr. Stephen Waldron, Vice President and Chief Medical Informatics Officer with the American Academy of Family Physicians. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you about some of the work that we're doing at the at the AAFP. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of some of the work that we're doing in our AFP Innovation Lab. Um, and I'll focus a lot on kind of our work on some of the digital assistants that are leveraging AI. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about kind of where we're tr- where you think there's an opportunity leveraging AI in primary care and family medicine to both improve the capacity and capability uh, of our family docs and, and other primary care physicians as well. So I'm probably sure most people are familiar with some of the uh, administrative burden challenges that are out there today. And um, I know primary care is not alone in this, but um, if you look at kind of a lot of our docs, um, they've got short visits. Um, They're trying to take care of a lot of work in that short period of time. Um, Most of it is not face-to-face work. Most of it now is kind of administrative EHR desk work that they're doing. Um, family physicians are are burning out and all physicians are burning out. And our current technology um, really is not adequate to really support care delivery. I talk about it being that it's been designed to automate the business of healthcare, not to the delivery of care. And that's why I think a lot of the docs and, and nurses give uh, current EMRs kind of a, a failing grade. The challenge, though, is that it, it has a potential to get getting even even worse, right? Um, today, we focus a lot on the patients that come into the office. Um, so this is work that was started in 1961, and it was repeated in uh, 2001, uh, looking at kind of how do people access um, healthcare? Um, and if you have kind of a standard set of 100 or excuse me, 1,000 people, you know, 800 of those will end up having some type of, of symptom, um, 300 seek some type of care. Most of it, though, is, is being delivered not by um, kind of healthcare professionals. Um, and the you know, visit to a family physician or another physician there is just 200. And then you can start to kind of get an eye squint there to get down to how many people are actually being seen in the hospitals. So we really haven't been focusing on the majority of people to really drive down uh, you know, uh, cost and improve quality. Uh, and we're going to have to extend that that focus if we want to be able to um, bend those cost curves and improve quality. Um, and with us being already stretched so, so thin, we need to be able to have innovations that really provide more capacity and capability uh, in practice uh, if we want uh, physicians to be able to take on these um, additional uh, people and help them take care of uh, their, themselves. So as I think about kind of AI in general, where can it help in primary care and, and other specialties? Um, you know, in primary care, we talk a lot about the four C's being comprehensive, be able to provide first contact, having uh, good care coordination and good care management. And I think there's a real opportunity to add two more C's to that mix um, by leveraging this AI. Um, so by decreasing administrative burden, you're giving doctors um, a more capacity to take care of uh, the actual reason they went to medical school and what we really want them to be able to be focused in on. Um, there's an also opportunity then just on the cognitive side. So even if it is uh, completely focused on the clinical needs uh, and the clinical work, 
um, the cognitive burden to be able to manage that is, um, you know, very difficult to do today, just given the volume of, of data that's out there, both on the patient side, but also on the, on the evidence side. I think there's a real opportunity too to increase capacity beyond those two areas. Um, so I'm sure in other areas um, you've seen where folks are using, um, you know, AI virtual agents to have communications with customers, uh, and we're seeing that starting to to happen in, in healthcare as well, where you have, um, you know, a smart agent that is able to have a communication with uh, a patient and be able to collect the type of information that's needed or to be able to share information uh, with the patient or to be able to do some administrative tasks like answer very simple questions or help them schedule appointments. Um, and that would end up freeing up a lot of um, time inside the practices to be able to devote to stuff that only nurses and physicians and front staff, front office staff can actually do. So it's really exciting about some of the things that I think can start to happen over the next uh, decade relative to increasing that capacity. The other is being able to increase the capabilities. So this is where you think about AI. Um, it's probably not going to replace, at least not in my lifetime, uh, you know, a physician. Um, but if you think about a physician or the professionals being a series of kind of skills and tasks and competencies, there are certain things that we're able to do um, better because that we have the technology. But there's also things now that we're able to do that we could not do without the technology. I think about the, you know, the first kind of FDA approved AI device to be able to do uh, retinopathy screening inside an exam room. Uh, so where before in primary care, we would, you know, send those out to um, our ophthalmology con uh, colleagues to be able to do the, the basic screening. And sometimes the patient would not follow up. Sometimes the patient would you know, not make an appointment. Uh, we may not know that they didn't get that done. And there's those gaps fall. As opposed to now, if I had that type of tooling in my office, I would be able to, you know, just send them down to the next room over and be able to do that and say, yeah, everything looks great. They're good to go. Um, but if it's not, now that's the opportunity to follow up with the ophthalmologist and let them focus on, um, you know, treatment and, and really evaluating kind of where that uh, diabetic retinopathy is at. And the last one, which I, I won't talk about at all today because uh, we're not really focused on that now, is to be able to actually start to help uh, be able to predict disease and, and outcomes. And I think there's some real cool things um, happening in that space, but it's not an area that we're focusing in on. And our labs are really focused on more of the administrative um, side because it helps us be able to uh, garner trust uh, amongst our members and physicians around being able to leverage these new types of uh, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence type tooling. So specifically for our innovation lab, we see three big problems that we're trying to really focus in on. The administrative burden that I talked with you about burning out physicians, but also this transition to value-based care. Um, and without having great technology to be able to manage that, especially if you're taking downside risk, it could really burn down a practice financially. Um, and then we've already spoke a little bit now about kind of how it's AI and ML is going to change what it means to be a physician. I just don't know if that's just 10 years from now or is that 25 years from now. Uh, but our hypothesis in our labs is that if we can really drive innovation focused on the needs of family medicine, that we can really address these three big challenges uh, to the specialty, which I'm sure other specialties are also um, contemplating. 
So our lab itself has uh, this charter here where, you know, we know that family medicine is really based on that deep physician-patient interaction. And because of the complexities of modern medicine, we really need technology to be able to support us to do that. And unfortunately, traditionally, EMRs really have eroded that experience rather than enhancing it. So our purpose with our labs is really to partner with companies that are using you know, the latest proven technologies like cloud and AI and ML and voice to really optimize the family medicine experience to try to put out those three fires that we just spoke about. So the actual process in our labs is uh, staggered into three types of um, phases. So first, of course, we look to make sure that we are focused on one of those big problems that I spoke about. Um, and for our docs, the big, big three, the big three relative to administrative burden are um, EHR documentation, supporting prior authorization and utilization management. And then the last one is being able to do the quality reporting, um, all the data submission stuff that you have to do. Um, so once we have identified a solution that potentially can solve that in the marketplace, um, we then talk to 10 of our physicians across two to three practices and really create a proof of concept saying, all right, does this, is this really proven in family medicine, um, both in regards to is this something that's really effective to address that type of problem, but also, and probably even more importantly, is, is this actually adoptable by family physicians? Is there some large you know, upfront cost? Does it require staffing? Does it require six months of integration? You know, those type of things would make it such that these types of solutions would not be adoptable at scale. So at the end of that, we create a report uh, talking about the challenges and, and the things that we found from that. If, if that is successful, where we find that um, it appears to be effective and adoptable, um, then we look for a prospective um, phase where we try to recruit up to at least 100 of our members from across our membership. And we call this our kind of proof of adoption. So now we want to know for whom is this type of solution um, work for? Whom does it not work for? Um, and really, is it really adoptable along a larger cohort of our membership? And at the end of that, then we would end up creating another report um, that talks about those things. If at that time we do find that this is effective and adoptable, and also really importantly is that our docs tell us that this is essential type of technology, meaning, you know, we've heard from our docs talking about this being a breakthrough or this is transformational or, um, you know, my dissatisfaction is greatly improved by using these types of tools. Then we would consider that class of product an essential innovation um, for, for our members. Um, and then we would work to really educate our members on that product class um, and they could, you know, look to multiple different products that are in this space, but what are the characteristics that you really need to understand for that product class as you're looking at different offerings that are in the marketplace? So this is our roadmap at the AAFP Innovation Labs. We have those big challenges that I spoke about um, and the uh, solutions that we're actively looking at. Um, so you know, documentation being the number one burden um, and we have been working with a company called Suki to look at this notion of an AI assistant for documentation, which I'll talk to you a little bit more about. And the second one, looking at that cognitive burden piece, that clerical review, is another AI assistant uh, by a company called Navina. And as it relates to sign of supporting this transition to value-based care, we've also started to look at uh, direct primary care and what are the tooling that's needed 
to be able to be successful in that. So we've been doing some work with Hint and Elation and, and a company called Spruce relative to that. So I want to talk to you a little bit specifically about those first two kind of digital assistants, both leveraging uh, AI. So I mentioned those reports. So the the AI assistant for documentation um, is painted through the first two phases of our labs. So this is data from our phase two. We had 132 um, clinicians participate in that. Um, the vast majority were family physicians, but there were some uh, mid-levels and some other primary care physicians in the mix there uh, that work in practices that our physicians work in. Um, but of those that... Um, trialed the product and used the product, they saw a 72% reduction in the mean documentation time. So this is like, you know, spending 12 minutes to do a visit, uh, document your visit to dropping that down to two or three minutes. All of our labs are situated such that there's a kind of a trial period. Um, luckily, we've been able to do that free for our members so far with all our labs. Um, but if they want to sign up for the lab, they understand what the commercial relationship will be after the lab, meaning what's going to be the price point? What are, what are they going to have to do to keep this type of product in their practice? At the end of the lab, they have kind of a, a no-cause ability to terminate, so they don't have to go ahead and continue. But it was really important for us to understand kind of that price point and what's actually required of a practice so that we understand you know, are people going to actually adopt this type of solution if there's no, um, you know, free trial or if there is a, a limited trial, will they understand the value proposition and feel like that price point uh, meets that? Um, so that's really important for us. So at the end of the 30 days, 60 percent go ahead and uh, decide to continue with the contract and be a paying uh, customer of um, uh, this particular company, Suki, that has this AI assistant for documentation. And of those that adopted, we saw a significant improvement in practice satisfaction. So we look at that on a five-point scale in regards to burnout, and it was able to drop by a, a, a point. Um, satisfaction with your practice increased by a point, and satisfaction with your work workload increased by a point. Um, so at this point, we were really thought that this was a really great opportunity for our docs to really decrease the one of the biggest um, challenges and administrative burden that our doctors have. So for, for us, we think this, this product class of an AI assistant for documentation is essential innovation for family physicians and other clinicians that have documentation burden. Um, and I think that's important because we had some of our docs that um, didn't adopt. So that 40%, we asked them kind of what was the reasons um, some of it was that their organization hadn't made the determination yet that they wanted to um, finish, so the organization had a longer trial period. But of those that uh, truly decided not to adopt it, um, the biggest thing was that they just did not have enough documentation burden to feel like that this was worth um, them spending the time and money to, to do this type of solution. So it's really important they have that documentation burden before this would be an essential for them. And the other is that this assistant can be integrated into the EHR. So that ability to be able to pull data in and push data out. Um, so these type of solutions are like in a, kind of in a Siri or an Alexa type of solution where you're able to talk to the, the your smartphone and tell it how you want to document. Um, and with that integration, you can say like, hey, Suki, show me my schedule for today. And on your smartphone or your uh, application running on the web, um, 
I mean, assume on your desktop, it would show your list of all the patients that are scheduled today. And then you could say, I'm going to create a new note for Letitia Ramirez. And maybe you have two or three uh, Letitia Ramirez in your um, panel, but it knows which one is actually on your um, schedule for the day. So it's able to create that note for you. And then you can say things like, pull my last note forward. Um, hey, Suki, um, change physical exam abdomen to distended uh, with rebound. And it would know that it, it needs to find the physical exam. It needs to find the abdomen component to that. And it needs to replace the text. So unlike traditional kind of voice recognition software, uh, it, you can actually ask it to do commands and not just type what you actually say, which is really important. And for our docs that were using those type of solutions, those, those traditional voice recognition, they saw, still saw a significant increase because of those commands, but also because they did not have to navigate. So they didn't have to put the cursor in the history section to be able to do that, or they didn't have to put their cursor over here. And that ability to pull some of the data forward uh, was really helpful for, for them uh, using these types of AI assistants. And there are several other companies out there. So when we look at this, in addition to kind of making sure that this is something that really is accurate and effective in regards to doing documentation, we feel like that these solutions to be essential for family medicine, they need to be integrated into the EMR they need to be able to be mobile so that you can actually not have to be tethered to your EMR. Um, we saw this a lot for you know, our docs that still had a little bit of after-hours documentation that they were able to do that. Um, the other is that the company needs to really be committed to the specialty. Um, you know, there's a lot of overlap in the different types of specialties in regards to what we do, but there's also a lot of things that are unique. So making sure that there's that commitment to the to the specialty was really important. And for us, we found kind of this kind of price point, and I just do 200 is a really round number. Uh, but anything that was over that when we talked with docs, um, you know, the, the ability to think like, I want to give this a try and take a think about it in my practice started to drop off. So we think that these type of solutions also need affordable. The thing too is that really it's kind of consumer um, engineers, so engineers that have created a awesome product. Um, and the adoption of this is just like any other kind of smartphone app. Um, it's not a kind of a traditional health IT adoption, requires extensive training and a lot of integration from the practice. So that's where we talk about it being kind of affordable and adoptable. Uh, so we're really excited about kind of continuing to educate our members around that particular solution. So the next assistant that we looked at the, is to address this problem of the clerical burden. So we talked with our docs a lot and they kept telling us that they just felt like they were overloaded and did not have enough time to review. Am I missing any diagnoses or other clinical elements? Is there something in some um, consultant report or some uh, imaging study that, you know, was supposed to be followed up on um, that didn't, but it's buried in some scanned in document, uh, you know, deep in the EMR. And then for those docs that are part of uh, value-based care arrangements, you know, what are my care gaps and quality metrics and RAF score? And I'm making sure that I'm accurately representing the complexity of my patients um, uh, to the plan so that I can get the, the funding that I'm uh, deserving of. And then we find out that just current EMRs really were not designed to, to do this work. So our docs end up feeling like they were always rushed and they always felt like I got to be missing something uh, here. So we found a, a digital assistant that does um, something like it was. This was work pioneered, I think, by Google. Uh, maybe if you ever use Google News, it's called auto summarization. So it uses AI to read through a document or a collection of documents and create a summary of that. 
So this type of tool will read through the patient's entire record and create a problem-oriented summary for that particular patient. Um, so it would be like if a patient has diabetes, that your first problem there would be, you know, the diabetes with the appropriate ICD-10 code for that particular patient. And then if there was a hemoglobin A1C, what was the last date of that? What was the value? Is there a microbiopathy? If so, what was the value? What was the date? Was there an ophthalmology consult for a, a you know retinopathy screening? Even if that was buried as encoded inside the EMR as a endocrine um, no, instead of uh, ophthalmology like it was supposed to be, it was able to pull that together. So if you think about um, you know, prepping for a moderately complex patient, being able to have to go into all those different places in the EMR to find the data that you know exists, but then to really hunt for that data that you can't exist, um, you could spend 30, 40 minutes for a moderately complex patient, especially if you're covering from one of your colleagues' patients, to really pull that data together. So we found in our first phase of this, so we have uh, 10 clinicians that have used this particular solution, they were able to decrease the time the physician spent on prepping for a visit by 70%. There are about 23% of diagnoses that we say were found, meaning that they were in the note somewhere or in the chart somewhere, but they really weren't either on the um, RAF scoring piece or they weren't in the problem list. And docs felt like those need to be represented in the chart. Um, and then we saw a practice that had fairly significant effort already to really improve their RAF scoring, was able to see another 38% increase in their RAF scoring. Um, and a lot of those docs in the um, report said that this is something they would highly recommend to our docs. And again, talking about it being kind of a game changer. So you can kind of see here the, the, you know, the amount of minutes it would be to adequately prep for a visit. Um, you know, they were spending you know, seven, eight, nine minutes and able to get that down to two, two and a half minutes. Uh, per patient, which uh, can really significantly add to um, your day um, and be able to do these types of, of solutions. So I would be remiss if I didn't talk about some of the, the challenges, though, of, of really looking at some of these AI-based solutions. Um, and probably the reason that we've really focused a lot on the administrative side, more so than the clinical side, because uh, we feel like our, our docs have a better idea of saying, you know, is this really creating a note well is this really pulling the data together well as opposed to being something that's really focused on the clinical aspects of it uh, they may not be able to adequately you know evaluate did, did the AI, ai do a good job on this particular patient so some of those things that we're looking for is one making sure that we actually have fair models um, so that the training data is going to be biased because there's bias in the actual data that um, we have in healthcare um, so if you use that data to train your models, you have an opportunity to, to embed that bias into your model. Um, so I talk a lot with our docs. If you're thinking about these AI solutions, some of the questions you need to think about um, talking to your potential vendor on around fairness is, you know, how, how does the, the, they make sure that they ensure fairness of their models, um, making sure that they're thinking about biases and how they're looking at that into their model. Um, what population are they using? Um, and is that, so therefore, is that population representative of the population that you're caring for? And if not, there's a potential of having bias um, in that particular model uh, for your use in your practice. Um, so having that diversity is really important and making sure that they are actually checking not only that the data going in is diverse, but they're actually testing it on a diverse population so they can ver verify that it actually does work across multiple um, um, 
diversity types of patients. Uh, the next is this notion of a kind of this black box of these type of things and being able to be explainable. Um, and that's going to be a significant challenge moving forward. But what we talk with our docs about is we can ask them to show how the model made the decision. So are they able to kind of articulate at least a little bit? And probably what they're going to do is that second question is kind of be able to tell you what the most important pieces were for a specific, um, you know, prediction. Um, and that's probably where kind of, I wouldn't say the state of the art is, but the state of kind of the commonplace is around that. Um, you also want to make sure that they don't have um, lack of adequate training data. So how are they making sure they have enough training data? How are they making sure that that data is generalizable? How do they continue to get more training data as they move forward? Uh, because the last point there is you have to make sure that uh, these models become stale quite quickly. So they need to be, be retrained uh, often. So how are they obtaining the data to be able to do that? Just think about a, a, a model um, before the pandemic. It, would, it wouldn't know anything about the COVID-19 or long COVID or those type of things. So it needs to be retrained with, with more data as we as start to understand those things moving forward. And of course, at our, our work too, not in addition to kind of the innovation lab, uh, we think there needs to be a policy infrastructure that really supports adoption of these types of AI models moving forward, um, both from a standpoint of kind of professional medicine, but also kind of national health policy. You know, so on the kind of the medicine side of the, the fence here is, um, you know, how best is it to evaluate interventions using AI? I don't think that we have really done the work inside of, uh, you know, organized medicine to talk about how are we going to evaluate interventions that are based on AI? And how do we train physicians um, around the use of AI? Because uh, a lot of AI ML solutions are going to be hybrids where it's the human working with the AI tool in concert to be able to get the outcomes that you want. So how do you make sure that physicians understand how to lever that and where does AI and ML work well, where you have to be watchful for potential pitfalls that we just spoke about um, just a second ago. Um, the next is where's the appropriate boundaries for autonomy. So uh, when we talk with our docs, um, you know, at what point do they feel like they can offload the decision-making to the AI. And for a lot of our docs, they just feel like they can't. Um, so either they need to make that up front. So they set up kind of more or less kind of think about it as kind of standing orders where there's a discussion about um, if this and this and this, then I'm comfortable with this type of, uh, of outcome. Um, or that each decision then is suggested to the physician by the AI and the physician ends up being the, the arbiter of, um, you know, move that order forward or not. Um, and we just talked about kind of those, not only training, but what are those best practices for that human AI collaboration? And on the more national uh, front, you know, how do you balance that safety and, and innovation of AI? Because uh, we still need a lot of uh, innovation to happen, but how do we do that in a safe manner? I always think about the FIDESIA, um Act work, um, looking at software as a device. Um, but I think that model the FDA had worked on with that is a pretty uh, nice kind of uh, risk-based framework to think about this type of solution. The other is who's going to be liable. So if you're leveraging an AI solution and they're helping make the decision, then where's the liability, right? You know, of course, it's it's all with the with the physician. Um, and as we talked about the challenges with fairness and those type of things, how do we ensure equity uh, across um, all these type of solutions? And we need large volumes of data to be able to train these. So how do we modernize our privacy policies in a way that allows uh, appropriate use of these data, but also allows for 
uh, patients and physicians to have the privacy that they uh, need and deserve. Um, and then lastly, um, you know, just kind of what is the role of autonomous AI? Um, and so at Winpoint, can the physician not be in the loop? What does that mean or not mean? Um, so those are some of the big challenges that we're trying to start to think about on the, on the policy side. And again, kind of the reason that we really focused on the administrative side of the fence is, one, it's where the biggest per burden and challenge is currently for our docs, um, but it also kind of doesn't allow how it gets us to the point that we don't have to deal with some of those big thorny issues, but we're going to have to start dealing with those. We want to be able to lever these types of AI solutions more deeply into the practices and on the clinical side of, of the fence as we continue to move forward. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT communities connect, collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us, and be safe.